The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I came across an article uh, in 2014. It was an article by a philosopher and theologian named James K. Smith. Uh, He wrote an article titled, The Gift of Confession. The Gift of Confession. Um, In it, he spoke about the innovation of the megachurch in the 1980s, the innovation of the megachurch. And Smith points out that the innovation of the megachurch in the 1980s was not size. It was not size, but strategy. He writes this. The philosophy of ministry and evangelism behind the megachurch movement was often described as seeker-sensitive. Sunday gatherings would be less focused on building up those who are already Christians. Instead, gatherings would focus on being hospitable to seekers, those who were not yet Christians but were curious enough to consider attending an event that was accessible, welcoming, entertaining, and informative. But in order for the church to be that sort of place, this entertaining place, it was going to have to feel less, well, churchy. If it was going to be sensitive to seekers, the church would have to remove those obstacles of its practice and tradition that were alleged, alleged to be obstacles to the unchurched. And so the strategy that he points to is a strategy that says Sunday morning needs to feel more like you're going to the mall. Um, it, it needs to feel more like a concert. That's Sunday morning. Well, why bring this up, Brad? Why start on such a polemical tone? Well, I draw our attention to this article today because Smith goes on to point out that in light of this new strategy, one ancient practice that got the boot was a time in the service where the church would confess their sins. A time in the service where the church would confess their sins. The reason is that this practice of confession would surely turn away seekers, right? Now, I get how someone could think this. Uh, In TV shows and movies, anytime the phrase, confess your sins, is heard, it's normally spoken by either a fundamentalist southern preacher screaming at the top of his lungs at his poor congregation, or it's commanded by a Catholic priest that's working for the mob. Really, in either case, a confession of sin is seen as disingenuous, uh, oppressive, uh, sucking all the joy out of the room, and founded upon the idea of an ancient, angry deity waiting to smite us if we make one wrong step. Confession of sin. I, I don't know what comes into your mind this morning when you hear that. I don't know what images are stirred up, what emotions are stirred up when you hear these words. 
But, but what if a confession of our failures is not something that's oppressive, but something that is liberating? Um, what if confession is not a killjoy, but is life-giving? What, what if deep down in everyone, what if deep down in seekers, confession is something we actually crave? Confession is something that we long for, even if we don't know it. Well, in our psalm for today, we get a different vision of confession, a different confession, uh, vision than Hollywood gives us. Um, not an oppressive, joy-killing one. Uh, the, the vision of confession that we see in Psalm 32, um, Psalm 32 is one of the penitential psalms. It's a psalm of confession uh, that the tradition ascribes to David. And what I want us to do to see the vision of confession that we're given is to focus on three movements in the psalm for today. Three movements. First, the agony of David's concealment. First movement, the agony of David's concealment. Second, David's confession and the Lord's response. And then thirdly, David's instruction for you and I. By focusing on these three movements, by meditating on these three movements, I pray that we would see the beauty of confession this morning. And that by the Spirit, Shades Valley would be transformed into a confessing people. A confessing people. And that that would be a good, good thing. All right, first, the agony of David's concealment. First, David describes a time in his life where we tried to deal with his failures by concealing them. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 to see this. Verses 3 and 4 in the psalm. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, the psalm doesn't give us the exact situation that David was in. Uh, we don't get those juicy details. Um, it's possible that this is talking about um, the time in David's life when he kept silent after the adultery with Bathsheba and after planning the murder of Uriah, it's possible that he's talking about this time, this, this time before he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. It's possible that he's reflecting on that time, that he's thinking about his, his state. Um, but it's also possible that he's talking about another time. Um, and we can see this because you and I, as the people of God, know that concealment of sin, that hiding from God is not a one-off event in our Christian life, is it? It's a constant temptation, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to lead the God we love. 
Um, but the focus of these verses isn't on the circumstances, not circumstances that we can look back at and point a finger at. No, the focus is on the agony that we can all identify with. The focus is on the agony that we can all identify with, the agony of concealment. And I would argue that this agony is something that Christians and all humanity, in some sense, can identify with. All humanity. Back to Smith's article for a second. Um, And Smith, in trying to show that deep down we all desire confession, he points to an unlikely example. Um, The HBO miniseries, True Detective, starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson as Louisiana detectives, Russ Cole and Marty Hart. Uh, Russ Cole, played by Matthew McConaughey, is seen as an interrogator for the police department who can elicit a confession from almost anyone. Um, Smith writes this about Rust. Rust. He says, when Rust is asked how he does it, how he gets these confessions, his method is rooted in a philosophy about human nature. This is what Rust says. Look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty, especially. And everybody's guilty. Whoa. Um, Matthew just took us to church. It seems like this desire to confess guilt, this desire to bear our souls to another, admitting that we have missed the mark of who we are called to be as humanity and as a society, is part of God's common grace given to the world. We know we need absolution. We know we need a Savior. And there is something that is pushing us to confess. Silence and concealment are not saving us. There was another article that I read that was talking about um, how many uh, philosophers thought that if we could just get God out of the center of society, that guilt would be removed and it would no longer be an issue for us as a society. Well, uh, this philosopher in particular was noting that that's happened, and yet guilt is a pervasive problem. It has not gone away. And our silence is not saving us. The the silence in verse 3 that David thought would bring absolution has only brought pain. He says, his bones wasted away. His bones. That made me think of another vision of bones that were given in Scripture. In Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones... The bones signify hopelessness. Hopelessness. Hopelessness of a life apart from God. And hopelessness, being hopeless is the state of David right here. He says his strength was dried up. Like a plant deprived of water. 
like a plant deprived of water in the heat of summer. He is drained of energy. He is immobilized, weary. But don't we know these symptoms of concealment all too well? And as David talks in verse 4, he talks about the hand of the Lord being heavy upon him. The hand of the Lord being heavy upon him. David sees this weight that he's feeling ultimately is the grace of God. Isn't that an interesting way to see this? Ultimately is the grace of God, is the gracious work of the Lord. Here is, is the loving discipline of a father that will not let anything stand in between the way of his intimacy with his children. And that's what David's silence is doing it is doing to him, isn't it? It is isolating him. It is causing him to hide from God. And God graciously says, I will not allow that to continue in my people. This is not how David was created to live. Closed off, turn in on him turned in on himself. But finally, <laughs> David is taken to a place. The Lord leads him to a place where he says, no more. <laughs> I thought that I could get rid of it by keeping it to myself, but I can't. I must confess. I wave the white flag. And he goes before the Lord and confesses his sin, which takes us to our next movement. Our next movement. David's confession and the Lord's response. David's confession and the Lord's response. Verse 5, read with me. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Next, uh, let's go back to verses 1 and 2, where David reflects on the response of the Lord. You looked at David's confession. Let's look at his reflection on the response of the Lord. I'm alliterating more. Get behind me, Jonathan. David's reaction to the response of the Lord. That's actually really scary. Um, he says this, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Um, verses 5 and 6 really show us how David comes before the Lord. It shows us uh, the nature of his confession, right? Um, he says he did not try to cover his iniquity. He did not try to lessen his failure or, or make himself feel better about it. No, he, he was completely vulnerable, bearing all the crap, all the horrible things that he had done that he thought he could, he could never say. He tells all. He does 
what we all desire to do. Doesn't he? Which is what? Which is completely reveal ourselves to someone, even all the junk, even all the crap. Completely and honestly lay ourselves bare before them. That's what, that's what we desire. That's what we want. Um, I, I found myself doing this, uh, but not to God, um, uh, to commercials. Uh, whether it's a weekday or a weeknight, um, we'll be sitting watching TV, and a commercial will come up, and I find myself confessing, forgive me, for I do not have enough money. Forgive me, because I do not have enough possessions to, to be seen as desirable, to be seen as worthy, to be seen as a decent human being. Forgive me, I, I do not have a truck. How could I ever be seen as a man? Forgive me, I'd, I've tried, Lord, but I do not have six-pack abs or a physique like anybody on that TV screen. How could I be desirable? I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm kind of serious. When we watch these commercials, the people were like, that's so dumb, and to ourselves, we're like, oh, we want that. Right? It's a confession. And conveniently, the commercial offers a solution. Not absolution, not forgiveness, but what? Their product, right? That is going to solve my woes and my problems. There I find myself in a pattern of confession, but no absolution. Confession, but no forgiveness. Just an endless cycle that I continue in, right? But when David goes before the Lord, he is shocked by the Lord's response. And what is the Lord's response? Immediate forgiveness. Immediate forgiveness. In verses 1 and 2, we see that David's sin is forgiven, covered, not recorded. That is full absolution. Forgiven. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Dr. Ross, my Hebrew professor, writing on this verse, says that the word that David uses for forgiven in Psalm 32 is a word that gives the sense that the sin was lifted away. That the sin was lifted away. This word here, we translate forgiven, stresses the, uh, the idea that sin was completely taken away, and with it, the burden of guilty fears. And this is re-emphasized in the next line. It's parallel to it. David says his sin was covered, covered, hidden, removed from sight. This is how the Lord responds. He also says the sin was not recorded. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David's sin is not recorded or logged into an account to be looked back upon later. Church, hear this good news. There are no books or hard drives or cloud storage in heaven with a record of your sin because the Lord has forgiven them. 
They are gone. They are, if I can say, forgotten. Now let me pause there. Forgotten. That might sound odd. To say that sin is forgotten is not to deny that God knows all things. All right? Um, It's not to suggest that he wouldn't know what you were talking about if you brought it up in the past. God would be like, what? No idea. Right? No, that's not, that's not what's being emphasized here. Um, rather, it's using uh, anthropomorphic language. It's using human language to acknowledge that he will never bring them up again or deal with you on the basis of them. Do you see that? He will never bring them up again or deal with you on the basis of them. He will never grow weary of your confession, church. He will never say, oh no, not this again. Your sins have not been recorded. So David ends verse 2 by saying, joyful is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Um, Joyful is the man who fully brings himself before the Lord who speaks honestly and openly and vulnerably with the Lord. The Psalms are such a beautiful example of this, but I, I, I worry that our prayer life is not. Are you bringing yourself honestly before the Lord, even with those thoughts that you think you cannot speak? You can bring them before the Lord. Joyful is the one that doesn't hide or ignore his failings. Joyful is the man or woman who does not self-justify, but brings themselves fully before the Lord, acknowledging their failure, because there they will be met, not with condemnation, but with forgiveness and newness of life. Forgiveness and newness of life. These, these, are, these are breathtaking verses. And I fear that our familiarity with them dulls their sharp edge. And Paul quotes these verses. Verses 1 and 2 in Romans 4, 7 through 8, to show that uncircumcised Gentiles, that you and I can receive this grand forgiveness, this right standing before God. Not through circumcision, but... Through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, as he would say, apart from works of the law. Apart from works of the law. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. Um, A scholar by the name of uh, Derek Rish Maui has written a really thought-provoking article where he meditates on the work of Christ as accomplishing our forgiveness. Um, He meditates on this, how through the cross of Christ, we are able to have this grand forgiveness that can seem too good to be true, how God does this while at the same time remaining a perfectly just creator and judge. How God can offer this forgiveness and at the same time be perfectly just as a judge 
and creator to the entirety of the cosmos. Listen to what he says. Bear with me. He says this. First, talking about us. Many have pointed out that when you and I forgive something, you and me here, a debt, an injury, to property, so on, we have foregone making the other person pay, right? But in one sense, we've agreed to pay it ourselves. In one sense, we've agreed to pay it ourselves. We shoulder the debt and pay it for them. This is typically how things work. Now he goes on, in light of that example, to talk about the cross. But here is the marvel of God's forgiveness at the cross. It's both like and unlike our forgiveness, in that God assumes our debt at the cross. He takes responsibility for it. At the same time, he pays it as one of us. And in this way, he actually wipes it out himself on the cross. Only God's forgiveness then is the sort that erases guilt and debt in an absolute sense. He assumes our debt. He takes responsibility. And at the same time, he pays it as one of us. He completely wipes it out. Do you see the marvel of and the beauty of that? Only God's forgiveness then is the sort that erases guilt and debt in an absolute sense. Once more, back to that, how can God be perfectly just? Once more, this is how as an infinitely wise God he wills to forgive, such that he can act all in once the various ways he relates to his creatures, king, judge, father, lover. Because he is God, he does not fail to maintain justice, even as he performs mercy. Woe. Shades Valley, here is perfect love, mercy, and justice. Here is how the guilty go free and are completely forgiven. Here is the only perfect and complete sacrifice that everyone in creation is looking for, able to remove our guilt. When the author of Hebrews writes that when he ascended, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's basically saying there that Christ's sacrifice for the purifications of sin was perfect, whole, complete. And now he reigns in authority and power. God is powerful. God is merciful. God is just. We are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of of the cross. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is why you and me can go before God with assurance of forgiven. This is not a religious cliche. This is not something that's said to make us feel better or to try to deal with our guilt. This is the work of God. That as we continue to gaze upon the cross, we continue to see its depths. And its beauty. So then, after hearing shades, you and I, after hearing about such a perfect work, after hearing about such a complete work, 
After hearing about that, then our confidence for forgiveness, as Paul would remind us, is not in our works, but in the word of God and the finished work of Christ. As those in Christ, we do not, we do not continually confess our sins hoping or wishing that God will forgive them. Uh, as those in Christ, we do not come before him with grand and emotional acts of contrition like I did at every youth event, trying to twist his arm. We don't need to do that. We're, we're not trying to persuade him to forgive us. No, I love what one theologian says. We come simply acknowledging reality. Our failures, we come simply acknowledging reality. And our sin is immediately met with a complete and eternal forgiveness. It's taken away. It's covered up. It's, it's not recorded. It will not be used against you. Because we are in Christ. We are his. And he is ours. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. I love what Brian Chappell says about confession in his book on worship. I thought it was beautiful, and I think it can reframe how we view confession and forgiveness of sin. He says this, In confession we run to his arms, talking about God, with our sin-sick hearts, because we know there is a grace sufficient, boundless, and free, already there. We know there is a grace sufficient, boundless, and free already there. We repent because we are forgiven, not to gain forgiveness. Let me say that one more time. We repent because we are forgiven, not to gain forgiveness. In our confession, we experience God's love because we confront our sin with the greatness of mercy that is already ours through faith in Jesus Christ. So in confessing our sins before the Lord, we're, we're not, not only are we fully known, not only are we getting our failures out, not only are we not remaining silent, not only are we addressing them, but the response is love and total acceptance. Forgiveness. In confession of sin, it's an opportunity to preach the gospel to yourself. Do you see that? So if we deny ourselves confession of sin, if we deny ourselves confessing, then we are denying ourselves an opportunity to speak about the beauty of Jesus, to speak about the beauty of the gospel, to speak about someone who stands in on our behalf who loves us and sees us totally for who we are. Totally for who we are. All right, and finally, last move. David moves from confession and absolution to instruction for the people of God. From confession and absolution to instruction for the people of God. Uh, read verses 8 through 12 with me. Actually, it's verses 8 and 9, sorry. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, I think at the end of these verses, David, it's almost like he can't contain himself. He has received this knowledge. He's received this beautiful revelation from the Lord. And he can't help but share this good news with the people of God. He advises, hey guys, don't do what I did. Do not hide from the Lord. Do not be like an animal that has to be disciplined. Because David learned from his experience that the Lord desires his affections, his intimacy, communion. And he will not let anything get in the way of that. So David says, don't be like me. Well, why? Because David has seen that forgiveness is so immediate. It's so certain. And it's so joyful that to refuse it would be foolish. Right? To refuse it would be ridiculous. Right? And so he ends with a plea to, to us, to you and me. Confess your sins to the Lord. So, this week, as, as I was meditating on these verses, as, um, as I was thinking through this, I was really wrestling with questions like, what does it look like for us to be a community of confession? What does that look like? Um, what does it look like for this practice of confession, this beautiful practice that we've seen, um, to become second nature to us? Um, how can we introduce this rhythm of grace, um, this rhythm of bearing ourselves before the Lord, hearing the good news of the gospel? How can that become a rhythm that's just a part of our day-to-day? Doesn't that sound amazing? How is that possible? especially in the chaos of our lives, right? Well, there's no doubt that this is a practice that for each of us individually must become a part of our day, Um, something that we can't imagine not doing. But I want to close by suggesting that if we are going to follow David's instruction and be a confessing people, we must confess our sins with and to one another with and to one another. Um, One of our elders recently started an hour of prayer on Tuesday mornings. Uh, A few of us come together and pray individually for about an hour and then close together in prayer. And I was talking to him about it and what a good idea that I thought that it was. And he just honestly said, you know, I just know that if I don't come here, and gather with y'all for this time of prayer, it won't happen. And I thought, man, what a lack of discipline. No, that's not what I thought. (laughs) Y'all would never talk to me again. I said, no, exactly, me too. If I do not gather together with other people for this time, it is very hard for me to consistently and daily pray 
with the people of Shades Valley. We come together. In modernity, there's been this shift where we've come to see the church as secondary to our spiritual lives. And it's not working well for us. You know, it's, it's almost like we need one another. This is why confession and hearing the gospel, I believe, has to be a part of our corporate worship. Um, this is why we at SVCC, despite the megachurch mentality, work really hard to find creative and unique ways to confess sins and hear the good news of the gospel in our corporate worship. We do it through uh, reading and responses. We do it through songs that have this rhythm. We do it through silent times and spontaneous corporate prayer. We do this through body life and having an open mic in the back half of the service. We do this through art. We do it as we come to the table Individually confessing our sins. It's a rhythm that is an aspect of our service, and it's a rhythm that I think is beautiful. Beautiful. Not the vision of Hollywood, right, but the, the vision of, of Psalm 32, beautiful. Yeah? Um, I believe confession and proclamation of the gospel should have a presence in our various groups at SVCC. A time of prayer that I can still remember from several years ago is when we as a group of musicians got together in prayer before we practiced and just had a brief time where we confessed our sins verbally to one another. It wasn't anything crazy detailed. Lord, forgive me of my pride. Lord, forgive me that I want to make worship on Sunday about me. Lord, forgive me of the way that I judge and distance myself from other people at Shades Valley. Now, then to go into a time of playing music about the gospel was absolutely beautiful. What does it look like for the groups that you're involved in to have this beautiful rhythm of confession and hearing the gospel? And then lastly, if we are to be a confessing people, then confession should be taking place to one, to one another one-on-one. Uh, one-on-one. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, that's been extremely influential in how I view community and life of the church, um, says this uh, about confessing to one another, one-on-one. He says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. I love that. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself or woman. Sin demands to have a, per, a person by themselves. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation. We're back to that again, aren't we? Isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. These conversations with trusted, wise followers of Christ are beautiful moments to have the gospel preached to you. They have been for me. Some of us know these conversations well. 
their rhythm that they're in, and some of us can't remember the last time that we have done this. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we can't even think of a person that we would be so vulnerable with. Yet, these are such beautiful moments where the Lord heals us, where the Lord kills our flesh, our self-justification, our pride, and he preaches his word to us. He addresses us through a brother and sister in the body. Lord, may we confess our sins to one another. Give us these relationships. Keep us with one another long enough so that they may form. David ends his psalm where we will end. Joy. Joy. In all these things, the motivation is not some spiritual status, but it's joy. It's to experience the joy of intimacy and communion with Jesus Christ so that we may be conformed to Jesus Christ, so that we may be transformed to witness to the beauty of confession and the breathtaking forgiveness of God. So shades know this and have this joy. No matter what comes to you in the weeks and years ahead, you can be sure of one thing. Your sins are forgiven. Amen.